as he comes to share the word this morning. All right. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Uh, can you hear me if I talk about like this? So I don't need the, uh, the PA. Okay. Thank you. Well, it's uh, really great to be with you. It's nice to see you. Some of you, uh, I think a lot of you I recognize of ha- having uh, met on previous uh, visits here. Uh, if you've met me before, wave at me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so. I thought so. And if I haven't met you before, howdy. <laughs> nice to meet you. This is uh, just a great privilege for us. Uh, we were so excited when uh, the uh, conference uh, that Ben was referencing this last week was planned uh, outside of uh, D.C. near Dulles in uh, Reston. And I thought, that's not that far from Baltimore. <laughs> so uh, nice to see you, but we really came for the grandkids. So just want to be honest about that, you know. <laughs> Any chance to get to see them, be around them, obviously. So I'm just uh, really excited today to see the progress and the growth and development of your church family. Uh, you're growing. Uh, every We only get to come once or twice a year, but each time we've been here through the years, it's it's cool to see each time, you know, a little more progress, a little more growth, worship team's growing. You all seem to like each other more. You know, everything seems to be <laughs> developing really well. How many think this is a good church? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I can tell you're happy to be here and obviously kind of proud, you know, of our of our kids and uh, how they're responding to the call of God in their life. And it's such an amazing thing when you, uh, you know, when when you have children, when Glenda and I had children, it's back in the Jesus people days, you know, so you prayed about everything, you know. And of course, you should pray about having kids. I think it's one of the most godlike power we possess as human beings is to bring new eternal beings into existence. It's a pretty cool thing. But we prayed and, and, and we talked about it as like, okay, sh- you know, should we have children? Of course, we'd like to. Uh, why? Uh, what would be our motive? You know, and, and we prayed and we realized that, you know, everything we do should be for the Lord's sake. So we said, okay, we're going to make babies for the Lord's sake too. <laughs> And uh, if he would be pleased to use them in some way, that would be such a privilege. And and uh, so he took us up on it. And uh, at that time, we had no idea that if you give your kids to God, he might take them to other parts of the country. <laughs> yeah, we, we we weren't really thinking that through that well. But uh, we're uh, we're so uh, happy that uh, God's using them and our daughter in Cambodia, et cetera. So, uh, okay, anyway. I'm just full of family feelings right now, so we'll, we'll get to the Bible. We're, we're on a series here, uh, Good News, and it started last week. And so this is kind of interesting for me because uh, Ben called me and he said, uh, we're just starting a four-part series on the good news of the gospel. And uh, he said, would you be willing to do part two? And I said, well, of course I would. And, you know, it, I, I, uh, there were many years when I was telling him what to do, and now the role is reversed. <laughs> And it's kind of fun, actually. It's like, I guess I owe him, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I'm uh, just jumping in on part two. So last week was part one. And our theme verse here, as you'll see, is Romans chapter one, verse 16, which says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. How many glad there's good news? Amen. Yeah. It's, uh, do you ever get tired of watching the news on television? Because it's always 
Bad news, yeah. And I know occasionally they put the fluff piece in, you know, to make you feel good, you know, the, the good news part. But listen, Jesus has the best news ever. And that is we can stop being so selfish and stop hurting ourselves and each other. And we can have a transformed life and we can actually know God and have fellowship with him. We can actually learn how to love as he loves. We can have his joy, his peace, his righteousness. We can have a brand new life in him. Old things are passing away. Everything's becoming new. There's good news in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what bad news is around. Jesus thinks he can fix it. It doesn't matter how wrong things are and how desperate things get and how awful things are. Jesus believes that he can fix anything. And in fact, he can. And he rose from the dead to prove that he can. And we're cheering that fact on, singing about it today and praising him. And now this verse uh, was written to the church in Rome. And uh, and by the way, here's the theme verse that we have. A deeper understanding of the good news results in lasting life change. So the good news is not just for your entry to the kingdom of God, where you get your ticket to heaven, you're good, you're in. You know, the the good news is actually not just that Jesus came to save you from hell, which, by the way, is really good news. (laughs) But it goes beyond that. It's not just a ticket to heaven, which is amazing, the best ticket ever. But it goes beyond that to say we can actually change. We can actually overcome doubt and fear and guilt and shame and all the effects of selfishness in our life. And, you know, we, and our relationships can change and our view of ourself can change and the, the way we function in the world that we're in can change and, and the, the, the ability to make a difference in the world that we live in. All of that can change and that's all part of the good news. So the good news is not just for your entry into the kingdom of God. It's also to sustain you through, as you grow and walk and serve the Lord. Everybody follow that? So the cross is not just relevant once in your life, it's relevant every day of your life. The power of the resurrection doesn't just come to give you a fresh start, it's there to help you live out that fresh start every day of your life. So our theme statement here is, a deeper understanding of the good news results in lasting life change. So the reason in church why we talk about the gospel so much is not just because we want to keep getting people in the door. It's because we want to live out all the implications of it for our whole life. Amen? So the gospel is always relevant. Do you need Jesus today? If you don't think so, ask the person next to you. They'll say, yeah, you probably do need Jesus. I'm not saying right now, but, you know, yeah, we we need him in our life. So there are uh, four parts to this four parts to this uh, series. Last week was where did we come from? Talking about creation and why God created us. I'm going to reference that in a, in a minute. The one we're doing today is why did things go so wrong? The one next week is what will put things right? And then in a couple of weeks, it'll be how can I be put right? So where did we come from? What went wrong? How can that be fixed? It's a simple approach to understanding the, the main pieces of the gospel. So I don't know why I got, I got the bad news uh, week here, as you could tell. You know, I'm, I'm supposed to talk about how messed up we are. <laughs> We're pretty messed up. You know, in other words, sin and selfishness really messes us up. It messes up our relationships. It messes, you know, it, it distorts our sense of ourselves. We can't see anything right because we're blinded by our selfishness. 
and it distorts everything. So I'm going to talk about uh, what went wrong, and uh, I hope you'll uh, follow along with me. So today's the bad news. Next week is the good news. Please come back, all right, next week. you got to be here next week. Um, but I want to take you to a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul's referring here, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, he's referring to what happened in the beginning back in the Garden of Eden that's recorded in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And I want you just to notice what he says, because he's writing thousands of years after that incident in the Garden, you know, the famous incident with the snake and Adam and Eve, which we're going to go back and look at. Thousands of years later, he's writing to, in his day, modern New Testament Christians. And notice what he says. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Notice that. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived, so you. Now, he's saying that people living in his day, that actually what he's saying is the devil's never changed that his tactic hasn't changed, that just how he went after Eve in the garden in that famous story, he uses the same method today on us as New Testament Christians. Everybody see that in that verse? So Paul's saying that that story back in Genesis is so relevant for New Testament believers because Satan's still trying to do the same thing. He's still trying to mess with us. He's still trying to mess things up. You think, well, but that was Adam and Eve in the garden. They were innocent. That's different. And, you know, now we're kind of messed up to start with anyway. So wouldn't he do something different? No, he's still trying the same tactics. So let's go back to Genesis and take a look at what he did. This, of course, happened in a garden. I don't know that it looked like that. But anyway, just visualize a garden setting. And in that garden, this is where sin began in mankind. So God created us to have this love relationship with him. So then what went wrong? And that's what we're going to look at in, uh, in Genesis today. <clears throat> in fact, I'd like to just give you kind of some numbered points here as I move through this story in Genesis, because we'll see how relevant this is for us today. So man was created for a purpose. And that's stated in Genesis chapter 1, be made in his image and likeness and subdue and conquer and and be fruitful and multiply. And there's a lot of words that go in. There's actually four main reasons why God created man. That is to have a relationship with him, to become like him, image and likeness, his character. Thirdly, to share in the family business. That is to have dominion, to subdue God and son's company. You know, God wanted his kids to work with him in his business of running everything. And then fourthly, to pass life on to others, reproduction, be fruitful and multiply. But I want to focus primarily on the number one reason why God created us. He created us to have relationship with him. Now, God was pretty happy for eternity past, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is doing fine. But at some point, God, as a father, wanted to have a family of kids to relate to. And of all the descriptions of God in the Bible, which there's so many and they're all so relevant, the one that Jesus used the most, particularly if you read through the Gospel of John, is Jesus called God Father. Now, yes, he's creator and he's king and he's our rock and, you know, he's everything. But the most comprehensive title for God that brings all those together is Father, because Father has a hand in creation or giving life. Father has authority. Father... And I understand sometimes we have problems with the concept of father just because we've, we haven't always had the best dads in this life. If you did, great. If you didn't, 
connect to God. He's better. You know, it's like, you know, God's our ultimate father. Jesus came to, you know, clue us into that. And he said, when you pray, say our father. He didn't say our rock, you know, our, he said our father. So he's a father who wanted to have a family of kids to relate to. So his purpose was to have a family of kids to relate to. Now, how do you know that if you try to have a relationship with someone, that's risky? Relationships are risky business. Why? Because people can either love you back or not. And when God created us with choice, that created a risk. That that choice would be used in a way that was contrary to him. You think through when God created everything, think through the days of creation. I'm going to just kind of concise it here, but... God created stuff, you know, sun, moon, and stars, the mountains, the hills, you know, everything. And he looked at that and he said, that's good. You know, at the end of the day, it was like, good job, God. You did a good work today. He felt the satisfaction of creating something that was significant. I mean, have you ever checked out the universe? It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. Even just our little planet here, you know, it's amazing what God made. He said, that's good. But his heart of love was not totally fulfilled by creating stuff. Just like our hearts can't be totally fulfilled by loving stuff. You can love stuff, but stuff can't love you back. And loving stuff too much almost becomes a twisted form of self-love. But stuff doesn't know the difference. Stuff doesn't love you back. I can say, wow, this is the coolest clicker ever. I love this clicker. You know, I can, oh, I want to take this clicker home with me. You know, you can love an object, but the object doesn't love you back. Right? So God didn't stop there in creation. So then he, another day, you know, he created all the plants and the trees and the flowers and the grass and all of that. And it's like, well, that's cooler than rocks. And more people farm plants and grow plants than grow rocks, you know. <laughs> like, why? Because, well, there's more of a response. And if you have green thumbs, you know, that it works and plants grow. And, you know, and God created all that. And he said, that's good. You can love plants. Again, the plants can't love you back. Right? I don't think so. I've never been kissed by a plant. (laughs) (laughs) Then God took another step and he created animals. Well, more people have pet animals than pet rocks. And even more pet animals than pet plants. Why? Because there's a greater level of responsiveness. And animals will respond. And I know they respond out of instinct. And that instinct could be manipulated. But, you know, the father and daughter walking through the mall, they come to the pet store and there's the puppy in the window. And she says, oh, daddy, can we buy the puppy? And they, they buy the puppy and take it home and feed it and pet it. And it licks their face and poops everywhere, you know. But, uh, but that puppy would lick the hand of anybody who took it home and fed it and petted it. It responds out of instinct. Now, I know they can get attached to their, you know, et cetera. And I understand animals are kind of cool, and a lot of people love animals. True. Nothing wrong with that. But God didn't stop there. He didn't just create us as like animals. We just respond out of instinct. Oh, God's around. Lick, lick. (laughs) Oh, he's not looking. Poop, poop. (laughs) God God took another giant step in the order. Because he looked at that, and he said, that's good. But then he took a giant step higher in the order of creation. He created us, human beings, with the ability to choose whether or not we would respond to his love. Which makes it so much more meaningful when we do. If God had just created us as pre-programmed robots, what kind of fulfillment would there be in that? 
we wouldn't be fulfilled with a relationship with a pre-programmed robot. I know sometimes we'd like to have more control over the people around us. But we wouldn't be ultimately fulfilled by a relationship with a robot that we pre-programmed to say, I love you today, I love you today, I have to say this because you programmed me. (laughs) What makes us think that God's infinite heart would be fulfilled by that? We wouldn't even be fulfilled by that. So his love, motivating his creation, took a giant risk. He created us with choice, knowing full well that we could take that power of choice and reject him. It's happened plenty, hasn't it? I saw a greeting card. It's a long time ago on the front of it. It said, let us live, let us love, let us share the deepest secrets of our hearts. You open it up and it says, you go first. (laughs) I remember standing there just kind of laughing. I'm like... They captured the sense of risk. Relationships are risky business, aren't they? Why? Because there's choice. Because we can either choose to respond or not. Or, you know, that's why if I can kind of use an over-stereotypical kind of thing. Let's say in the springtime, a young man takes a fancy at a young lady and he decides to express his interest. He goes and buys some flowers. He goes over to his house, her house and he walks up, you know, and he going to knock on the front door. At that moment, he's so nervous because he doesn't know how she's going to respond. He hasn't talked to her friends to find out ahead of time. <laughs> just just pretend with me, okay? <laughs> so here he is, you know, and his, his heart's pounding, you know, and his mouth's kind of dry and his palms are sweaty, you know, and it's like he knocks on the door and she comes and he, she says, oh, it's you, hey, you know. And then he here's the moment of truth. He pulls out the flowers. Here, these are for you. Now, at that moment, she has a choice. She's not a dog. You know what I mean? The puppy that has to respond out of instinct. You know, she she can take the flowers and she she can respond any way she wants, right? If if she's not interested, she can take the flowers and throw them right back at him and say, Get lost, Charlie. I know. Anybody else here, you know, ended up singing a country western tune after your love was spurned? You know, anybody, you know, it's like, but because there's the risk of that, that's what makes it so meaningful when she takes the flowers and says, oh, thank you, and bats her eyes at him, you know. Then when he leaves, he floats off the porch. Yes, she loves me, yeah, you know. Hey, it's either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat when it comes to relationships. God did not create sin. He did create the potential for it when he gave us choice. That's the risk love has to take. Everybody follow that? That's important for us to understand. So we can't blame our sin on God. He's just trying to have a relationship with us. So when he gave us choice, it wasn't like he's trying, you know what, I hope they mess up this planet I put them on, so let's give them choice because I know they'll probably make the wrong choice. What was that uh, movie that was just out, uh, The Giver? Was that the movie, and uh, what's her name? Meryl Streep was playing the lady in charge. And she says, uh, if we give them choice, they'll make the wrong one. And the whole movie's about free will, all that stuff. It's, I don't even remember much else from the movie except for that line. <laughs> but the, the point here is that God 
had a purpose, which is to have relationship with us. Now, let me break it down. We'll go through Genesis. He put man in the garden to keep the garden. That's very clearly described in chapter 2. And in this garden, he put a bunch of trees. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't ever leave out the word knowledge there. God did not... It wasn't the tree that had good and you eat some fruit and it makes you better and eat some fruit and it makes you evil. No, no, no. It was just the knowledge, the discernment, the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve were created in a state of innocence. There's no sin in them. God didn't pre-program them to, you know, uh, rebel against him. But he did give them choice for reasons I just described. So there's choice there. There's this one tree, he says, I don't want you to eat of that tree yet. Now, God planted the tree. The devil didn't plant that tree. It says in Genesis 2, God made that tree. He made it pleasant to look at. He made the fruit to be eaten. The fruit was meant to be eaten. But it's like he put this temporary ban on it. It's like, I want you to eat the tree of life, partake of my nature, and then, this is an assumption, doesn't actually say this in the verse. I want to be clear about that. But the assumption is that he would later lift the ban on the tree because he perfectly knows good from evil, but he has the strength of character to only do the good. And his kids, he wanted them to grow up into a place of maturity where they could handle the knowledge of good and evil, but have the strength of character developed so they would only choose to do the good. You know how you protect your kids from awareness of evil things before they have the strength of character to make right choices? Well, we do that instinctively for our kids. We shelter them from certain things and certain influences and awarenesses when they're young. Wouldn't God be a better parent than us? Like, where did we get that instinct from? Everybody tracking with me? So so the tree's there and he says, right now, I don't want you to eat of that. You're not ready for that yet. So we go to Genesis chapter 3. Here's the tr- uh, He couldn't eat of any tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't know how much time went by between chapter 2 and chapter 3. It doesn't tell us. Uh, we don't know. Uh, you know. Evidently, they hadn't been partaking of that tree of life. Life is the, the nature of God, etc. So they, evidently, it wasn't very long before they're hanging out by the wrong tree, the tree that was restricted And by the way, God didn't put a restriction there just to trip them up. It wasn't like taking a two-year-old and putting something right in front of them they shouldn't have just to so you can tell them no. You know, there was nothing like that. It was like here it is. Here's all these options. You can eat of all these other trees. Have at it now. Take care of the garden. Expand it. Make the whole earth like this garden. He gave man plenty of work to do. And then they're hanging out by this tree, and this is when Satan comes along. So we'll go to the next slide. And notice what he does. He starts out by questioning God's word. Chapter 3, verse 1. And when he questions God's word, he overstates the restriction. He comes to Eve, and this is what he says. Did God say that you couldn't eat of any of the trees? He wants us to think that God's rules are too strict. You know, and that God's harsh and that God's holding out on us and that God's overly restrictive and that God's punitive. Did, did God say that you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? And she corrects him. She says, oh, no, snake. No, that's not what he said. She, she says, he said that we could eat of the trees of the garden, except 
the one tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said that we cannot eat of it and we can't even touch it. Go back and read Genesis 2. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. So notice what the snake does. Here's reality, the truth of what God said. He goes way over here and says, Did God say you couldn't eat of any tree? Making it sound really restrictive. And she corrects him, but she moves his way one step. What's he trying to get her to do? To think God's rules are too strict, that God's too harsh. So she thinks she's correcting him, but she's actually taking a step in his direction because she adds the word, and we can't even touch it. It's a no-no. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat of the fruit. If you do, you will surely die. Now, he also gets her to do something else. I mean, they only got one memory verse and they can't quote it right. (laughs) They had a relatively small Bible at that time. (laughs) One verse, one command. And she can't quote it right. Not only does she overstate the restriction, she understates the consequence. This is borne out more in the Hebrew than some of the modern paraphrases. But she says... We can't eat of it and we can't even touch it unless we happen to die. What did God say? You will surely die. Now, this is Satan's tactic to this day, like Paul said to the Corinthians. He tries to get us to overstate the restriction and understate the consequence. God's rules are too strict. He's holding out on you. He's being an overly cautious parent. And he knows that if you go ahead and do that, it won't be that bad. It won't really mess you up that bad. You, you might happen to die, but you won't surely die. Everybody follow the point here? And Satan's still doing that today. It's the way he tries to work on us. Yeah, it, you know, the rules are too strict. Yeah, but the consequence is not that bad. It's genius on his part. It's diabolical, really. We ought to be able to see through this. We ought to be able to get clued in, like Paul said, so we don't drift from the true gospel. Now... What Satan does, now that he's got her misquoting the one verse, he pounces on it. And he quotes the verse better than she did. This is his next line. When she says, lest you happen to die, he says, you won't surely die. Quotes it better than she did. You won't surely die. Then he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God and you will know good and evil. Now, God is the source of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think God did eventually want them to have that once they had the strength of character to only do the good. But notice how he's slandering God. Slander is to tell the truth in such a way as to give the wrong impression. For God knows in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open. And that's what happened when they ate of it. It says a few verses later, their eyes were open and they saw things differently, right? That's why they made the fig leaf bikini suits and all that. So he's saying God's holding out on you. He slanders God's motive. It's not that God's trying to be this wonderful parent to get you to grow in character. So once you have the awareness of good and evil, you'll only do the good like he does. He perfectly knows good and evil, but he only does good. So God's holding out on you. So he tempts them to sin for knowledge. Something we've been doing ever since. Next. He tempts them to self-will against God's will. And they both eat of the tree. 
and they sin. And here we are, messed up, ever since. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, By one man's sin, sin entered the world. By one man's sin, death passed upon all of us. Of course, he's comparing Adam and Jesus. And one man messed us all up, and all of us descendants of Adam, we start life pretty selfish, self-focused, self-will, self-centered. You know, that's kind of the essence of sin. We kind of start out that way now. But by one man, Jesus Christ, can all be made alive, can all be made righteous, and we can have life instead of death. And it's important as a Christian to read Romans 5 and the comparison between Adam and Jesus. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Thank God we can be in Christ. Amen. And, uh, and the atonement was illustrated back there with the coats of skin and they're clothed with the death of another and the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And so God jumped in immediately to begin to redeem. But here's what we need to focus on right now. Sin has dire consequences. And there's death and there's a whole lot of stuff, but we want to just refer to a couple of them here. And we have a slide. Spiritual bondage and condemnation. That's when sickness and death entered the world and all of this. But a couple of things that are important for us to just be aware of is how much sin messed up our soul. The way we think, the way we feel, the way we make decisions. The, it's like there's this bondage that comes. And we may believe in God or we may not believe, but either way, we never make Him our greatest hope our, our greatest good, our greatest love. We try to maintain control of our lives by living for other things. For money, career, family, fame, romance, sex, power, comfort, social, political causes, or something else. But the result is always a loss of control, a form of slavery. Everyone has to live for something. And if that something is not God, then we're driven by that thing we live for. We overwork to achieve it. By inordinate fear, it is threatened. Deep anger, if it's being blocked. Despair, if it's lost. The novelist David Foster Wallace, not long before his suicide, spoke these words to the graduating class of Kenyon College in 2005, nine years ago. This is what he said right before he committed suicide. Great writer. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious, they're default settings. Boy, don't we need Jesus? Sin messed us up, and we have this spiritual bondage. And then we live with all this condemnation. Like, why do we feel so guilty? And why are we always, you know, trying to run from the consequences of our action and hoping we're not found out or hoping that what goes around doesn't come around, you know? <laughs> you know what? It's like sin has created this selfishness where we're kind of out of control. It's also created a 
a lot of doubt, a lot of shame, a lot of fear. So, where does that leave us? Come back next Sunday. No, I got, I got a couple more lines, okay? Where does that leave us? It's understanding this. There is a power in the gospel to change every bit of this. And this is what we're talking about here. There's this power in the gospel to change every bit of it. There is good news. The guilt can be removed. Amen? We can be changed by the God who invented us in the first place. Amen? There's good news. I'm going to ask Ben to come and close the service. Thanks for listening. So what we wanted to do uh, with part of our uh, service time today uh, was to also discuss the solution and give an opportunity for people to respond um, to that solution. Obviously, we're here today because we believe that there is a solution. Amen? you agree? Jesus. When Paul writes to those people that were living in Rome, a city like us, who didn't know the end of the story, Paul was writing about Jesus and the message of Jesus. And, and I'll, I've asked uh, you to be reading uh, Romans. And, you know, last week and this coming week to get at least through the end of Romans 8 by next Sunday. 